Chapter Three of Vera by Elizabeth von Arnim. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three. All that day and all the next day, Wemyss was Lucy's tower of strength and rock of refuge. He did everything that had to be done of the business part of death. That extra wantonness of misery thrown in so grimly to finish off the crushing of a mourner who was alone. It is true, the doctor was kind and ready to help, but he was a complete stranger. She had never seen him till he was fetched that dreadful morning. And he had other things to see to besides her affairs, his own patients scattered widely over a lonely countryside. Wemyss had nothing to see to. He could concentrate entirely on Lucy, and he was her friend, linked to her so strangely and so strongly by death. She felt she had known him forever. She felt that since the beginning of time she and he had been advancing hand in hand towards just this place, towards just this house and garden, towards just this year, this August, this moment of existence. Wemyss dropped quite naturally into the place a near male relative would have been in, if there had been a near male relative within reach. And his relief at having something to do, something practical and immediate, was so immense that never were funeral arrangements made with greater zeal and energy. Really, one might almost say with greater gusto. Fresh from the horrors of those other funeral arrangements, clouded as they had been by the silences of friends and the averted looks of neighbors, all owing to the idiotic jurors and their hesitations, and the vindictiveness of that woman because, he concluded, he had refused to raise her wages the previous month. What he was arranging now was so simple and straightforward that it was positively a pleasure. There were no anxieties, there were no worries, and there was a grateful little girl. After each fruitful visit to the undertaker, and he paid several in his zeal, he came back to Lucy and she was grateful. And she was not only grateful, but very obviously glad to get him back. He saw she didn't like it when he went away off along the top of the cliff on his various business visits, purpose in each step, a different being from the indignantly miserable person who had dragged about that very cliff, killing time such a little while before. He could see she didn't like it. She knew he had to go. She was grateful and immensely expressive of her gratitude. Wemyss thought he had never met anyone so expressively grateful. That he should so diligently go, but she didn't like it. He saw she didn't like it. He saw that she clung to him, and it pleased him. Don't be long, she murmured each time, looking at him with eyes of entreaty. And when he got back, and stood before her again mopping his forehead, having triumphantly advanced the funeral arrangements another stage, a faint color came into her face, and she had the relieved eyes of a child who has been left alone in the dark, and sees its mother coming in with a candle. Vera usedn't to look like that. Vera had accepted everything he did for her as a matter of course. Naturally, he wasn't going to let the poor little girl sleep alone in that house with a dead body, and the strange servants who had been hired together with the house and knew nothing either about her or her father, probably getting restive as night drew on, and as likely as not bolting to the village. So he fetched his things from the primitive hotel down in the cove about seven o'clock and announced his intention of sleeping on the drawing-room sofa. He had lunched with her, 
and he had had tea with her, and now was going to dine with her. What she would have done without him, Wemyss couldn't think. He felt he was being delicate and tactful in this about the drawing-room sofa. He might fairly have claimed the spare bedroom, but he wasn't going to take any advantage, not the smallest, of the poor little girl's situation. The servants, who supposed him to be a relation, and had supposed him to be that from the first moment they saw him, big and middle-aged, holding the young lady's hand under the mulberry tree, were surprised at having to make up a bed in the drawing-room when there were two spare rooms with beds already in them upstairs, but did so obediently, vaguely imagining it had something to do with watchfulness and French windows. And Lucy, when he told her he was going to stay the night, was so grateful, so really thankful, that her eyes, red from the waves of grief that had engulfed her at intervals during the afternoon, ever since, that is, the sight of her dead father lying so remote from her, so wrapped, it seemed, in a deep, absorbed attentiveness, had unfrozen her and swept her away into a sea of passionate weeping, filled again with tears. Oh, she murmured, how good you are. It was Wemyss who had done all the thinking for her, and in the spare moments between his visits to the undertaker about the arrangements, and to the doctor about the certificate, and to the vicar about the burial, had telegraphed to her only existing relative, an aunt, and sent the obituary notice to the Times, and had even reminded her that she had on a blue frock, and asked if she hadn't better put on a black one. And now this last instance of his thoughtfulness overwhelmed her. She had been dreading the night, hardly daring to think of it so much did she dread it, and each time he had gone away on his errands, through her heart crept the thought of what it would be like when dusk came, and he went away for the last time, and she would be alone, all alone in the silent house, and the upstairs, that strange, wonderful, absorbed thing that used to be her father, and whatever happened to her, whatever awful horror overcame her in the night, whatever danger, he wouldn't hear, he wouldn't know, he would still lie there content, content. How good you are to me, she said to Wemyss, her red eyes filling. What would I have done without you? What would I have done without you? he answered. And they stared at each other, astonished at the nature of the bond between them, at its closeness, at the way it seemed almost miraculously to have been arranged that they should meet on the crest of despair and save each other. Till long after the stars were out, they sat together on the edge of the cliff, Wemyss smoking while he talked, in a voice subdued by the night and the silence and the occasion, of his life and of the regular healthy calm with which it had proceeded till a week ago. Why this calm should have been interrupted, and so cruelly, he couldn't imagine. It wasn't as if he had deserved it. He didn't know that a man could ever be justified in saying he had done good. But he, Wemyss, could at least fairly say that he hadn't done any one any harm. "'Oh, but you have done good,' said Lucy. Her voice, too, dropped into more than ordinary gentleness by the night, the silence, and the occasion. Besides which, it vibrated with feeling. It was lovely with seriousness, with simple conviction. "'Always, always, I know that you've been doing good,' she said. "'Being kind.' I can't imagine you anything else but a help to people and a comfort. And Wemyss said, well, he had done his best and tried. 
and no man could say more, but judging from what, well, what people had said to him, it hadn't been much of a success sometimes, and often and often he had been hurt, deeply hurt, by being misunderstood. And Lucy said, How was it possible to misunderstand him, to misunderstand anyone so transparently good, so evidently kind? And Wemyss said, Well, one would think he was easy enough to understand. He was a very natural, simple sort of person, who had only all his life asked for peace and quiet. It wasn't much to ask. Vera. Who is Vera? asked Lucy. My wife. Ah, don't, said Lucy earnestly, taking his hand very gently in hers. Don't talk of that tonight, please. Don't let yourself think of it. If I could only, only find the words that would comfort you. And Wemyss said that she didn't need words, that her just being there, being with him, letting him help her, and her not having been mixed up with anything before in his life was enough. Aren't we like two children, he said, his voice like hers, deepened by feeling. Two scared, unhappy children, clinging to each other alone in the dark. So they talked on in subdued voices as people do, who are in some holy place, sitting close together looking out at the starlit sea, darkness and coolness gathering round them, and the grass smelling sweetly after the hot day, and the little waves, such a long way down, lapping lazily along the shingle. Till Wemyss said it must be long past bedtime, and she, poor girl, must badly need rest. "'How old are you?' he asked suddenly, turning to her and scrutinizing the delicate faint outline of her face against the night. Twenty-two, said Lucy. You might just as easily be twelve, he said, except for the sorts of things you say. It's my hair, said Lucy. My father liked, he liked. Don't, said Wemyss, in his turn taking her hand. Don't cry again. Don't cry any more tonight. Come, we'll go in. It's time you were in bed. And he helped her up, and when they got into the light of the hall, he saw that she had, this time, successfully strangled her tears. Good night, she said, when he had lit her candle for her. Good night, and God bless you. God bless you, said Wemyss solemnly, holding her hand in his great warm grip. He has, said Lucy. Indeed he has already, in sending me you. And she smiled up at him. For the first time since he had known her, and he too had the feeling that he had known her ever since he could remember. He saw her smile, and the difference it made to her marred, stained face surprised him. Do that again, he said, staring at her, still holding her hand. Do what? asked Lucy. Smile, said Wemyss. Then she laughed, but the sound of it in the silent, brooding house was shocking. Oh, she gasped, stopping short hanging her head, appalled by what it had sounded like. Remember, you're to go to sleep and not think of anything, Wemyss ordered as she went slowly upstairs. And she did fall asleep at once, exhausted but protected, like some desolate baby that had cried itself sick and now had found its mother. End of chapter 3